When I was a child, I loved to watch documentaries. I guess it was probably somewhat prophetic of my geekiness that would come as a grown man. I loved to watch the documentaries my dad would watch on politics or history, geography, science. I'd plop myself down on the floor and I'd sit there and watch PBS all day with him. I used to love watching documentaries about the sea explorer Jacques Cousteau. How many of you remember Jacques Cousteau? Yeah. And I remember being mesmerized watching films of these amazing sea creatures, the sharks and the giant eagle rays and the squid. And the ironic part is that I was so scared to death of the ocean because I was scared to death of drowning in large bodies of water. Go figure. Well, years later, after Mary and Kelly, her mom suggested that we all get certified, the family, and we go to Hawaii and have a scuba vacation. And I wanted to meet my fear, and so I went ahead and did it. And I will tell you, it is one thing to watch film of the ocean, and it is another thing to step into it. Am I right? Uh, Am I right, Matt? You just did this, right? You just got scuba certified. It's an amazing thing to finally experience it, to be in the middle of it, to be enveloped in it. It's no longer just in your mind, it's surrounding you. And I can still remember swimming through an underwater canyon, hearing the snap and crackle and pop of the coral as they were eating, and in the distance hearing the song of the humpback whale. And I will never, ever forget that moment. What I had known on an intellectual level paled in comparison to the physical reality that I was able to experience in what nature was manifesting before me. In that physical manifestation, I was experiencing the power and the beauty of God's creation like I've never experienced it before. And in that moment, it forever changed me because there was something new that I had felt. Now, in our world today, experience is what people crave. There was an article around Christmas time, uh, I believe it was in the New York Post, about how families are stopping uh, spending money on material goods. And as I was starting to read, I thought, oh, this is awesome. That's what we do as a church. We get rid of the material goods and we give to things that are uh, important in the world. And it, it stopped there. It basically went on to say that, no, they've stopped spending on material goods, but the new trend is you've got to spend it on experiences with your loved ones. And so vacations and manicures, classes, massages. Our newest idol as a society is to experience something that transcends our everyday reality. And we want to experience it in our jobs. No longer are we just paying the bills. We need a transcendent, existential movement, right? Uh, We want to experience it in our hobbies. No longer are they just for fun. They are supposed to bring meaning to our lives. We want to experience it in our marriages, which I have found in marriage counseling is a very weighty thing for any human being to bear the existential weight of their spouse. And we even want to experience it in our churches, Experience is everything. And I believe the Bible does not completely disagree with that perspective. Because it's not just hearing about something that helps us to know that it is real. It is also experiencing it as the truth changes our lives. Unfortunately, I think because the experience that the Bible calls us to provide to one another and to the world is so hard and difficult to procure... The church, in well-meaning hearts and spirits, decided we still want to give an experience, so let's give an experience. And so we short-circuited or short-cutted this idea of the experience that we'll talk about today, and we went with, for for example, an experience that is fun with a Christian label. Get a motivational TED Talk up front for the adults, some prize giveaways for the first 50 attendees, a VIP parking spot for visitors, and a grab bag as you go out the door. 
kids' ministry. It needs to be like Great America or Disney. And at the end of the day, they get to go home with a t-shirt. That's the experience. Or another one might be the hyper-spiritual experience. You get the right music, the right ambiance, the right number of candles, the proper charismatic one-liners, and the overemphasis that it is all about you as you stand among a thousand other people thinking it's all about them. And you too can have a transcendent moment with Christ. And if you really want to go over the top, you throw in some miraculous signs and wonders and maybe some gold dust scattered among the people. Hyper-spiritual experience. Unfortunately, even though these are well-meaning, I don't believe anyone who does these intends any form of evil whatsoever. Unfortunately, I believe that these merely create individualist consumers who will move from one place to another place looking for their next worship experience. But does this mean that a genuine Christian should be against feelings, against experience, against the manifestation of Christ? I would suggest to you absolutely not. My suggestion to you is that what we will find in our text today is that Paul is speaking to us that the world is to experience the character of Yahweh through the church. And not just one hour on a Sunday morning, but through the community of covenant faithfulness that is the people of the church. That is the experience that Christ calls us to. What Paul desires for the world and really for the cosmos, as we will see, is that there be this manifestation, this experience of the manifold wisdom of God amongst God's people. And it comes through the covenant faithfulness that we have in the midst of who we are as a family of God. You see, what I want you to understand today is this. The church is the plan. The church is the plan. Last week, we realized that our text here in Ephesians 3 was in the midst of a spontaneous prayer in which Paul will pray for the church of Ephesus to comprehend the love and the grace of Christ. And this comprehension, as we will see in chapters 4 and 5, is very much the motivation of how they live out their life. It's the motivation behind living the truth of the gospel every moment of every day. In their words, in their actions, in their relationships. This gospel identity plays out in truth. What was this gospel that has so much power? Well, last week I quoted from John Stott, and I'm going to revisit this quote. He says, The good news or the gospel of the unsearchable riches of Christ, which Paul preached, is that he died and rose again, not only to save sinners like me, though he did, but also to create a single new humanity, not only to redeem us from sin, but also to adopt us into God's family. Not only to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to one another. Thus the church, Stott says, is an integral part of the gospel. The gospel is good news of a new society as well as of a new life. And in this gospel of reconciliation, this radical reconciliation we talked about last week, Paul is referencing uh, going to reference the same gospel in our text today. So look with me at our uh, text here in chapter 3, verse 7, as we look at the first couple of verses. Verses 7 and 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, Paul says, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. 
The first thing that we see here is Paul's calling to proclaim God's mysterious plan. You can write that down. Paul's calling to proclaim God's mysterious plan. Paul first notes that he's a minister. The word there in the Greek is diakonos. It is the word from which we get the English word deacon. At its core, the word means servant. When people within the church are asked to step into the position of deacon, there's often a confusion that this is a position of prominence. Oh, you got to be a deacon? Oh, wow, that's really cool. While it does mean more eyes on you, it actually really means laying down your life for the people you love, regardless of whether or not they love you in response. To be a minister is to be a servant. I'm so thankful, by the way, for the deacons in our church, the men and women that lay down their life like crazy for us. Amen? And while we look at this idea of minister, things kind of come to our mind about uh, the man up front, or maybe you come from a tradition where he's got the certain suit with the collar. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying that he is a servant. And Paul, as we know by the fact that he was in prison as he authored this letter, he was literally laying down his life for the spread of the gospel. He wanted to lay down everything for the glory of Christ and the love of the churches that he had planted. And Paul says that he did this according to the gift of God's grace. Now, in our worldly mindset, does that sound like a gift? I'm going to give this to you and you're going to go to jail and you'll probably die. But Paul saw something different. He saw this amazing gift of God's grace because he could then reveal what had been revealed to him. He could give an understanding of the understanding that had been given to him. And it was by the working of God's power. Now, this is one of those very spiritual statements that is hard for anyone to pin down. We read it and we go, oh, that's so wonderful, but none of us really know what it means, right? What does it mean that this gift was given by the working of God's power? If we look at the context of what Paul is praying for the individuals that make up the church of Ephesus and the surrounding churches, I believe we can understand what he means by this phrase, gift of God's grace. Look with me at 3.14. Just go down the page a little bit. At the beginning of his prayer, where he steps back into it. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Notice that there's a collective comprehending there. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? As I've pastored over the years, this becomes more and more my prayer every day. I used to pray very specifically, Lord, heal this or deal with this or help this person get this job. And more and more, all I'm praying for all of you is that you would know and understand and experience the love of Jesus Christ. Because we can have all the logistical pieces of our life worked out, but if we don't have the overwhelming love of Jesus motivating us, then we are lost. We are not able to do the very mission that God has called us to. And Paul wanted them to understand this, to have a a knowledge that was inside them. To the Greeks, the heart 
where he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. This wasn't asking Jesus into your heart. Guys, you cannot find that in the Bible. That phraseology, that that idea is not there. You don't take Jesus off a throne and stick him in your pocket. He stays on the throne. But what he does do is by his Holy Spirit, in your cardia, in your heart, he steps into your motivations, your thoughts, your feelings, and your emotions. To the Greeks, the, the heart was the inside. It's like when I say, I know it in my gut, or I know it with all my heart. We're speaking of the inner life, and the follower of Christ at their core has the life of Christ because they understand his love. And what this does is this then motivates the church. Take a look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 there. I'm kind of skipping around here to show you his thought process. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, after he says, I pray that you know the love of Christ, he then says, and this should motivate you. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then again in chapter 4, verse 17, what does he say? Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. He says, know the love of Christ, be unified in the body of Christ, and then act like the body of Christ. It's obvious by the context that the knowledge of the riches of God's glory and grace was not just supposed to be something that they knew mentally or experienced just spiritually in a momentary transcendental fashion, but it was to be the motivation for the entire church of Ephesus to help one another grasp and fully comprehend what the love of Christ is. You know, I was so much one of those, I probably still am, one of those arrogant young guys You know, when I was in my 20s, parents would tell me, you'll never know love until you have a baby. And it's hard to say this now, but I'm going to sound exactly like those people that I was frustrated with. It's absolutely true. There's a love I have for my wife that is amazing, but I can't even tell you what happened the moment I heard John Thomas Rasmussen cry. I can't even tell you what happened the moment I looked into my daughter Kara's eyes. Kara Jane will forever have a love from me that no other human on this planet has because she's my special little girl. And one day she'll be an amazing woman of God. And there's a love there that is only fully comprehended in the moment of experiencing that time with them. Paul wanted this kind of understanding and comprehension for the church at Ephesus. And so the knowledge of God's gracious gift by the working of his power is not just the justification of Paul in the sight of God. It is that absolutely. Without that, there is nothing else. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's the justification. But it is also his transformation. The goodness of God's grace is also Paul's transformation. Remember Paul's testimony from last week. He went from persecutor and potential murderer to minister and servant of the same people he was going to murder, to imprison. Folks, that can only happen by the power of God. Amen? Amen. To assist a human in putting down their selfish flesh and the raising up of a selfless person, that act alone speaks of the power of God according to the working of his power. It's a miracle in and of itself. 
When I get to sit there in the midst of a counseling meeting where I have two fleshly humans going after each other and one of them decides, I want to repair the breach. I'm going to lay everything down. In that moment, I don't sit there and figure out my next counseling move. I internally pray, praise for a miracle that God has just manifested before me. When we grasp how little each one of us deserves God's forgiveness, And then add to that fact that he has not only justified us, but church, he desires to use every single one of us. When you put that together, it should bring us to a point of awestruck wonder. It is mind-blowing to me that he would take someone like me who gladly, joyfully blasphemed him with my words and with my actions for the glory of my own kingdom And yet today he's allowing me to preach the gospel to you. And you are no different than I am. He's raised you up from the pit of hell, from the kingdom of darkness run by Satan himself, and he has given you a commission to take his glorious grace to everyone around you. Sit in that for a moment. Recognize the miraculous nature that that can only be accomplished by God's power. It's an amazing thing. And so through this transformation, Paul was given an amazing insight into that which he did not deserve. He was given the call to become least of all, to preach the greatest of all to a world that was going to abuse him for it. This is the amazing absurdity that is the life of someone who truly gets what Christ accomplished at Calvary. The phrase in Greek, woodenly translated here, is that Paul sees himself as more least than all the saints. More least than all the saints. Is that how you view yourself? I am more least than all the other saints who are least. It's a good way to view the church, isn't it? Paul truly has emptied his life of any meaning outside Christ and his people. And folks, he wasn't just the only one to do that. He actually wanted us to follow in his footsteps. He told the churches, model me as I model Christ. Follow my example as I example Christ. He didn't say, I'm going to suffer, church, so you can have prosperity. He said, model me, follow me in my suffering. Walk with me as I empty myself, as Christ emptied himself, so that we can tell the world of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And because of this, he desires to take the message that has been revealed to him through a personal interaction with Jesus out to the world. And he goes on to tell us that he does this in three ways to three groups. Let's start again there in verse 7, and I'm going to read through verse 10, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister, a servant, according to the gift of God's grace, a transformation, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given for what purpose? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Secondly, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And third, so that, for the purpose of, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is going to be fun. You guys ready? You ready? Let's look at each one of these. First, we're going to see that, he's, that Paul is proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ 
to the nations, proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ to the nations. The revelation of Christ was given to Paul for the express purpose that he might take it to the ends of the earth, that he might take it to the Gentile nations that were outside the covenant family of Yahweh. And to do this, Paul was to proclaim. He was to use his voice to present the good news of Jesus. The word there in the Greek for preach is actually the word euangelizo. It's the word from which we get evangelize. Unfortunately for us, we get confused with that word because it conjures up thoughts of a person on a box on a street corner or maybe a crusade. But the reality of this word is that Paul is preaching the gospel in order to help the Gentiles know that they had a way through Christ to be joined to the covenant people of Yahweh, that they too could be reconciled to God's covenant people. That's why he says, I'm preaching to the Gentiles. The Jews already knew they were God's covenant people. He's saying, I'm preaching to the Gentiles so that they too might know that they will be reconciled. Now, you guys know me. You've heard me preach this, that I think that you need to live the gospel, and when asked, you use words. But I find that there's also this tendency to never use words. I don't ever have to use words. No, the reality is, is each and every one of us that proclaim to be a follower of Jesus must be able to speak the gospel. The whole point of God revealing truth to Paul was for Paul to then turn around and proclaim it, to evangelize. And as we've discussed over the last few months, that word was very, very known in the Roman world, in the Roman Empire. To evangelize was something that the Caesar would do. He'd send out evangelists to speak of the fact that he was now enthroned and he would finally bring the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So Paul is using this to state clearly, not just that people are saved, that too, but also that there is a king on the throne and his kingdom has been established. Now think about this just for a moment. If God's goal with the gospel is to reveal it so that it might be made known, does it make any sense whatsoever for each of us to take it for ourselves and let it end there? If his whole point of the revelation of the gospel was that his glory would be revealed, does it make any sense for us to hold on to it? That would be like these news stories I see where people find, you know, cars worth tens of thousands of dollars that are parked in a garage underneath a sheet. You got to use it. The gospel is for revelation. It's not for holding on to. It was revealed to us so we can reveal it to others. And what do we proclaim? Well, like Paul, we proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Shall we take the next five hours and talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ? The riches of Christ are so deep and wide that we will spend eternity digging into them. Through Christ, we have been given forgiveness of all our sins. Amen? Amen. Through Christ, we have been given resurrection from the dead. Amen? Amen? We've been given victorious enthronement with Christ in the heavenly realm. Amen? Do you even know what that means? You are enthroned with Christ in the heavenly realm. You're victorious. We've been given reconciliation with God the Father, incorporation as members into the new society of God's kingdom and family. We've been given the end of hostility and the beginning of peace. Oh man, if we could actually walk in that gospel truth. We've been given access to the Father through Christ and by the Spirit, 
this is only the beginning. The unsearchable riches of Christ. We have no idea what the final day of restoration and shalom will be like, but if it's anything, like what I get a chance to glimpse as a pastor in this church, I cannot wait for that day. How quickly we put aside these promised riches for fleeting rags. We put aside unsearchable wealth for well-worn spiritual poverty. We give up that which is inexhaustible for that which is absolutely exhaustible. We lay aside the infinite riches of God for the finite riches of man. God's kingdom for my own. We must instead grab hold of God's unsearchable riches so that we can generously give them away. Church, I have been so blessed, and I think Patrick would also give a hearty amen and every deacon that's been present to sit in those membership conversations where we ask you, what is the gospel? We do that not to interrogate you or make you feel bad, but we do it because we want to pastor you and assist you to be proclaimers of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We need to know if you know it. And the answers that you have given are wide and varied, but they always have a center of Jesus Christ, dead on the cross, buried, resurrected, enthroned as king. And I praise God that I am part of a church that knows the gospel and is willing to proclaim it. Have confidence in yourselves. More so, have confidence in the spirit that is within you that you know the gospel and you can proclaim it. Don't hold it. Don't worry about it. Simply proclaim it as the Lord gives you movement to do so. May the Lord search us this morning and speak plainly to us if for some reason our gospel witness is hindered by our life witness that we are building our own kingdom instead of his. Well, Paul not only is proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ to the nations, the second thing we see there in verse 9 is that he's enlightening everyone to God's plan of reconciliation through Christ. You can write that down. Enlightening everyone to God's plan of reconciliation through Christ. He says there in verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. He goes from saying, I'm preaching and proclaiming the, the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles to I want to enlighten everyone which includes both Jews and Gentiles, to God's plan of reconciliation through Christ. We spent last week's sermon looking at what Paul meant by this revealed mystery. The word mystery in the Greek is not like our mystery, something hidden that no one can find, but it's something that has been hidden is now being revealed. And this was the radical gospel of reconciliation that in Christ, God had reconciled the Jewish and the Gentile nations, making one new body out of the two. Do you remember that? Were you guys awake during that? Yeah, yeah? Okay, good. We got that? This was the message of all of chapter 2, one in Christ. There is no longer Jews with their plan and Gentiles with their plan. It has come into one. And remember what Paul proclaimed at the beginning of chapter 2, that we were saved out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. We were taken out of the old ways and established in the new. And look at what Paul states to his Gentile listeners in Acts 13, 47. He quotes from the book of Isaiah here, and he says, For so the Lord has commanded us, he being one of the missionaries speaking there. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, 
I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They're ambassadors on behalf of the kingdom of light. That's why they can enlighten. That's why they can be a light to the nations, is they're bringing the light with them wherever they go, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason that Paul says, I need to give this to everyone, is because you can't have reconciliation if one of the two parties doesn't want to reconcile. You have to have the Jews and the Gentiles reconciling together. And so he's proclaiming that the Gentiles, you can join the covenant people of God. And he's going to the Jews and saying, and you need to let them in. (laughs) You need to reconcile. You need to grow together into this one body that gives a manifestation of Christ to the world. But we should ask ourselves, when the pagan world thinks of the Christian church, think with me. When the pagan world thinks of the Christian church, do they think reconciliation? What's your answer? No. Do they think of unity? No. Do they think of us as ambassadors of reconciliation? Do they think of us as obeying these words of the Apostle Paul or that we just view the Bible as a bunch of great suggestions? Think with me of what Paul has said to the church, what he's commanded us here and elsewhere. Here's Philippians 1, 27 through 28. To the church at Philippi and to us as well and all the church of Christ, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in, what's those words? One spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Why? Because this is a manifestation. This is an experience. This is, he says, a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What is the sign to the world? It's the unity of the church. It's being unified and of one mind. That's the thing that the world cannot point at and go, yeah, there's nothing miraculous about that. No, it is miraculous. Because every single one of us in this room left to our own devices, what do we want? What we want. (laughs) Me too. And so it's a very, it's a miracle that can only come from divine origin that would unite a church of fleshly human beings. Look at Philippians 2.2. Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in partial accord? No, full accord and of one mind. Look at what he says to the church at Corinth in the, the first chapter. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's inciting the power of the king. When you show up and you're like, uh, I'm here on behalf of the president. That's a big deal, right? He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's actually laying the smack down here to the church at Corinth, just in case you didn't know. He's saying, guys, I know you've been messing up. I want you to know I come with the authority of God himself. He says, I appeal to you that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Is this hard, church? This is difficult. That's why only God can do it. How do you know the Spirit is present in a church? 
Is it the VIP parking or the transcendental worship? No. It is the unity among the body, as we will see for the next couple of chapters as well. Paul desired to open up the eyes of the world to the gospel truth and the plan of shalom that God has been rolling out since the beginning of mankind. And to do so, he was preaching the gospel through planted churches. He was preaching, then planting those people that accepted the truth of the gospel. And then he was raising them up and training them in their sphere of influence to be a light in the midst of the world. He was establishing sleeper cells. I know that phrase has terrible meaning in our culture. But the reality is, is we are at war in a different way with the tools of love and the spirit and of truth. And so we enter into a kingdom of darkness and we provide the light that shows them who is truly enthroned. Each local congregation was to be a manifestation of the kingdom, of the very heart of Christ, shining like a city on a hill, drawing people to the light of the kingdom of God. When Paul uses the phrase church or churches, 80% of the time in the New Testament, he is speaking to local congregations. Here he's talking about the global church, and that's 20% of the time he uses the phrase. But he knows that in order for the global church to be effective, he must train each individual local congregation in order to be unified and reconciled to prove that God is manifesting himself through them. And this is why Jesus prayed the way he did towards the end of his life. Look with me at John 17. Go ahead and go there to John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 17, starting in verse 6. And let's take a look here at what Jesus prayed for the apostles and all those that would follow them, forming this new body known as the church. It's pretty important, right, what Jesus wants to pray for us? Yeah? You guys awake? Yeah, it's pretty important? Okay. All right, let's take a look. John 17, 6. Speaking to his Father, Yahweh, being part of the Trinity that had been together ages past and will be together in ages future, he says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know. That's an experiential knowledge there, guys, not just mental. They have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And just to put this in reference here, in in, in context, is he setting the bar high here? Let's see. The church needs to be as unified as the Father is with his beloved Son. What? 
Jesus, like, okay, I know you're present by your spirit in the midst of our meetings. Have you not seen the church? Well, that's why he prayed for us to be one. He knew that in our own power, in our own consumeristic mindsets, we would hop from one thing to another, finding division and hostility, trying to earn our own kingdom. And so he prays for us that we would let that go and that we would be won by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now skip down to verse 20 there. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? The future church, including us and all those who are true believers across the face of the world. That they may all be one. Jesus, that's your highest priority? Yes. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What? Look at that phrase. What will make the world believe that Jesus was sent by the Father? Really great preaching. Wonderful worship. No. The unity of the church And then he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus, set the bar lower. What is happening here? Do you not know that we're imperfect creatures? But see, what's amazing is when you break something, The way you know whether or not it is mended together perfectly is not because of the broken pieces of the jar. It's because of the glue that holds it together. And the Holy Spirit, the person, the third person of the Trinity dwelling inside of us, he is the one that holds us together. He says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As God incarnate, Jesus was able to physically manifest the truth of God to the world by his everyday actions. The way he loved, the way he related, the way he healed, the way he brought righteousness and mercy and justice. And now Jesus in his high priestly prayer is asking the apostles and all those that follow after them in the body of Christ be unified to be one. And this was so that by the church's mere existence, the gospel words proclaimed might be backed by the power of the Holy Spirit that unifies the church of Christ. The unified and reconciled church is manifested proof that the message proclaimed by the church is truth. The church manifests this experiential truth to anyone that witnesses it. But there's still more. Paul's not even done there. The church fulfills another amazing purpose. Go back to Ephesians with me and let's look at the last one here. In building up the church, Paul also is making known to the cosmos the wisdom of Christ 
through the church. He's making known to the cosmos the wisdom of Christ through the church. Look at verse 10 with me. Back in chapter 3 of Ephesians. He says all this, the proclamation, the enlightening of the gospel of reconciliation. He says it's all for one thing. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made, now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, of course, the understanding and interpretation of this verse matters on how you view the church. As we talked about months ago, if you view the church as this ambiguous cloud in the sky that anyone who proclaims to be saved fits into, well, that's one thing, and that totally removes any teeth, any meaning that this verse has. But if you mean, as we talked about a couple of months ago, that the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly of God's people is the covenant community of Christ, the new humanity that he has created by the cross and the resurrection, now this verse has teeth. Remember that Ephesus was a center of mystery religions in which initiates who got the, the gnosis or the, the knowledge of the Gnostic religions would finally be able to understand the fullness of God. It was all about what they thought. And so the Christians in that city and all the surrounding region were engaged in massive spiritual warfare, which will be reiterated at the end of the chapter when we talk about the armor of God. But look back with me in chapter 1, just a page back here in chapter 1 at verse 20, and reread with me verses 20 through 23. Speaking of the, the plan that God had worked through Christ, he says in verse 20, this plan that he worked through Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Remember that idea of under his feet is a picture of a conquering king stepping on the neck of the enemy. It's complete conquering and victory. Now look back again at verse 10 here and look at what he's saying there. Verse 10 in chapter 3, he's saying, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities, those ones who he was put in authority over back in chapter 1. Paul is proclaiming that if you want to understand the mysteries and the wisdom of God, where is he pointing you to look? At the church. How sad is it that the ever-increasing refrain of pastors and congregants is this garbage of don't look at the church, look to Christ. We're all a bunch of hypocrites. Look to Christ. I believe Paul would vehemently confront this false proclamation and would instead say, if you want to see the manifold wisdom of my gracious plan, look at the true church. It is my very body acting on my behalf in the world. That brings conviction, does it not? No longer can we shirk our responsibility as the very body of Christ. By being the church, we are saying by asking the world to look at us, we're saying, look at Christ. 
That's why we're called Christians, little Christs. These words would have been an amazing encouragement and comfort to the hearers of this letter. By the mere presence of God's redeemed and reconciled community sitting in the greater community they existed in, these Ephesians could be secure in the knowledge that the authority of all the demonic powers had been broken and that the gospel was progressing and that the battle of spiritual warfare, while it may be brutal, we know that the day of full victory is coming. You see, that's why congregational singing to each other is so important. That's why praying with one another is so important. That's why going to the table of communion together is so important. Because by doing so, you are giving one another affirmation of the fact that you are victorious. You're helping one another. When you walk in here with brokenness, thinking, is Christ even real? Look around, guys. This is not just another social club. This is the very manifestation of the miraculous power of Jesus Christ, dead, resurrected, and enthroned. The very existence of you sitting in these chairs tells one another the day is coming where restoration and shalom will occur and Christ will finally reign victorious. Today, the word of God is no less clear if you struggle with the knowledge of the victory of Christ, if you struggle with affirmation of your own salvation, the Bible says look to the church and your own part in it. Go with me, for example, to 1 John 4. 1 John 4. I know there are a number of you in this church that you've spent a lot of your life wondering, am I saved? Am I not? Did I just do something that might remove my salvation? And we sit in constant worry. Well, John, being the author of uh, the letters of love, he says... There's a way for you to know. There's a way for you to be affirmed. And it's actually not looking into your own feelings and wondering if you feel saved, because I don't know about you guys, I never feel saved. Does anybody else feel that way? Am I the only one alone in that? Yeah. I I look at my life, I know it's in my heart at 2 a.m., you know? In my mind, when I'm laying there in bed at night, and I'm going, yeah, I, am I redeemed? Right? Right? So I come to church on Sunday morning thinking, man, I'm not even redeemed. What's going on? And i got to teach these people about being redeemed. And John gives me this wonderful affirmation. Look at chapter 4, starting in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Church, do you love one another? You don't need to sit here and go, man, am I saved? Do I feel like I'm saved? question for you is, do you love one another? If you love one another, you know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest. There's that word again, manifesting. It was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There it is again. Jesus is saying, look to my body. As I was in the world, so are they right now. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, well, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That word over and over again, brother, is a Delphoi. It means brothers and sisters. And John is speaking of the church. Not if you're just this, I'm a loving person. I love everyone. I have a coexist sticker on my car. I love them all. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, that's directly opposite. What he is saying is he's saying, do you love the brothers and sisters of the body of Christ? Notice the intertwining themes of God's love and our love for one another. Jesus manifested God's love and now we are to be as he was. A manifest presence to the world of God's love. And the way we show it is by our love for one another. This is how we give an experience to each other of who God is. I know when I'm hurting and I'm weeping, it is an opportunity to sit down with somebody who's going to be Christ for a moment. I got a chance to go up and visit uh, Ralph Johnson with his mom in the hospital who's terminal with a, a brain tumor. And man, Jesus was in that room. I got a chance to talk to his mom about the story of Scripture and who Jesus is and what eternity looks like and ask her some questions and pray with her. And, and then Ralph and I got to sit and cry a little bit together. And man, Jesus was there. That's the reality of the experience that Christ wants for us. Be praying for him and his family. He needs to have physical manifestations of Christ. Ralph and Teresa, they know Jesus, but they also want to feel Jesus in the moment. And last week in our reading about Paul being confronted on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Referring to his church. And here John says, if you want to love God, who do you love? You love his church. And this physical manifestation is not just to ourselves within the church to encourage our faith. It's also to walk in obedience so that we might show a faithful manifestation of who Jesus is to the world. We might enter into the lives of someone. Remember Jesus with the woman at the well, so caring and empathetic and yet speaking truth. That's who we need to be to the world around us. We don't go in with all guns blazing trying to tell them about Jesus. We go in acting on behalf of Jesus as his ambassadors of reconciliation, speaking the truth in love and caring for people. And how do each of us take part in this manifestation of Christ's wisdom in the global church? Well, we do it through our own local congregation. I think we can be so very effective evangelistically at this church. Not because I'm really good at standing up here and getting people to pray a prayer. 
Guys, uh, I love this quote by one of my mentors recently. He said, I've been doing this long enough that you get me in a room with 30 people under the age of 20, I know what to say to get them to pray a prayer. But the reality is, guys, is what we're doing is not trying to manipulate people's minds in order to accept an offering in that moment. We're trying to help people understand who Jesus is so that they might desire to be in Christ, walking with him for the rest of their lives. And that absolutely takes the proclamation verbally. But if the backing of the miraculous nature of God's redeemed people isn't there to give foundation to it, the words often can become worthless. That combination is vital to making disciples. This understanding of the manifestation of God's wisdom will play out not only in the world or in our own lives, but lastly, it plays out in the cosmic truth of the universe. That sounds very universal, doesn't it, right? Very spiritual. I'm from Oregon. It proclaims the gospel truth not just to humans, but look at what he says there to, uh, go back to, sorry, go back to Ephesians with me. And it says there that he's proclaiming it. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul's wisdom here, or Paul's statement here, is that the wisdom of Christ goes beyond this earthly plane into the heavenly one. Over and over again, Paul is speaking about the church manifesting something. And here what he does is he says, we're not only manifesting it to one another, but we're giving the manifold wisdom of God to the angels. Think about that for a second. Right now, at this moment, there are angelic beings straining to look into what we already know. God didn't give them a foretaste of what the plan was. He gave them the church. And over and over, the Bible says, and Paul says this in multiple places, that they long to look into what's going on with the church. Right now, you have two groups of angelic beings looking in on the church. You have those who have been loyal to Yahweh and will be until time ends. And they are praising God for what they see in front of them because this congregation, even if no other congregation existed, proves that Christ is victorious. And they can await the day where he fully conquers their enemies. And then there's the group of angels that are straining in to see what is this bizarre thing that human beings, fallible human beings, can be saved by the God that we rebelled against. And by the existence of this very church, we are speaking and proclaiming the death knell for their rebellion. Does church sound a little bit more important now? That's what the church gathers to do is to proclaim those two truths. And not just the event on Sunday mornings, but all throughout the week. When the world and the angels see the church, what they should see is the manifold wisdom of Christ as reconciler. Christ is king. Christ is priest and atoning sacrifice. Christ is victor. All carried out in a physical manifestation that is his church. And it should cause divine disturbances of epic proportions when they see us loving one another in a way that only spirit-filled Christians could do. For angels, they're loyal to Yahweh. It encourages them in the future fulfillment of a restored world for which the church is the precursor. 
And for angels in rebellion, it speaks to them of their certain demise and lets them know that Christ alone is victorious. What an awesome responsibility we have in this great drama of history. And you carry that with you not only here, but out those doors every day of your lives. I fear that many of us, without even being cognizant of it, act out our church body life as if it is something we simply have to endure until the true plan of God comes to fruition. I know I was in that camp for so many years. While the current reality of the church is flawed and bruised and battered, we must realize that this is the plan. The church is the plan. The true church must shine through even though there are counterfeit churches that are acting like they follow Christ. The reconciled covenant community of God operating as the body of Christ in this world with his spirit indwelling us and his law as our guide, that is the plan. It is what all of history has been heading toward. And that is why the apostles, they claimed even in the first century, this is the last days. Because the church age is the plan. And when Christ comes physically to rule and reign, he won't wipe out the church in order to establish yet another new creation. He will take what is flawed and marred in us right now and he will fully bring us to glory and allow us to rule and reign with him in his restored world. Again, John Sott can sum this up better than I can. I thought about just coming and reading this one paragraph and letting you all go home. Here's what he says. If the church is central to God's purpose as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? No, we shall seek to become responsible church members, active in some local manifestation of the universal church. We shall not be able to acquiesce in low standards which fall far short of the New Testament ideals for God's new society, whether it be mechanical, meaningless worship services, or fellowship which is icy cold and even spoiled by rivalries which make the Lord's Supper a farce, or such inward-looking isolationism as to turn the church into a ghetto which is indifferent to the outside world and its pain. If instead, like Paul, we keep before us the vision of God's new society as his family, his dwelling place, and his instrument in the world, then we shall constantly be seeking to make our church's worship more authentic, its fellowship more caring, and its outreach more compassionate. In other words, like Paul, again, we shall be ready to pray, to work, and if necessary, to suffer in order to turn this vision into a reality. Church, this morning our application is simple. I see before me individuals who grasp this truth and who are simply begging for more leadership towards that eventual vision and goal of being a unified church body manifesting the glory of Christ to the world. And I submit to you that I will lay down my life to do that. And our leadership will as well. We as a body can collectively come together, each of us knowing our own brokenness that we cannot do it without Christ, but at the same time allowing the Holy Spirit to truly fill our lives and lead us in reconciliation and unity. And by not only our gathering here on Sundays, but as we go out into the world, Jesus will use us to manifest his presence to everyone around us. So that when a missionary from Mission Fellowship, which is all of you, 
walks away from that moment with that person, they think to themselves, I wonder if that's what Jesus was like. That's what I desire for this church. And that's what I see in you, a desire for us to grow into. And so first today, each of us individually need to experience the love of Christ within the body so that we can let that empower us as we go out to proclaim the gospel, sing to each other as we worship. We're going to get up and do communion together here in a second. Let that be a sign to you that you are part of the body of Christ. Let it affirm you. Secondly, we need to purpose to manifest the love of Christ to the world around us, outside these doors, in a way where they experience a revelation of the character of Christ when they're in the midst of our covenant community. Whether that be two of us out in a coffee shop or all 250 of us here in this building. And lastly, by our purposeful and genuine love for one another, we give glory to God and encouragement to the spiritual powers that are in alignment with him. And we issue forth a battle cry of victory over those spiritual powers that choose to rebel against the Father. Church, we must change our mind to understand these truths. Within the body of Christ here at Mission, I desire for each of us to know what it is for the life of Christ to manifest itself to us through our covenant faithfulness for one another so that we might be able to say to each other and to anyone that we come in contact with the same words that John uses to open his letter of 1 John. He says this. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest. In other words, we felt it with all of our senses. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things too uh, so that our joy, your joy, may be complete. The reality is, is that Paul had experienced the goodness of Christ and that motivated him to proclaim the goodness of Christ. And we must follow that same example. Even as we go to the communion tables today, we have the ability to join in something miraculous together to speak to one another and to any visitor among us that might need to experience the reconciling power of the gospel of Christ. And we also speak to any spiritual beings that are looking in amongst us that we know and believe that Christ died. He resurrected on the third day. He lives and reigns and intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And he will be coming again to restore his creation.